This is it. You got to go out there and lay it all on the line every play. That's what it's about. I, I told the guys, a loss is a loss. We, we can't dwell on that. Tigers are in a cage. We got to pick it up. We are defending champions until they beat us. We get what we want, fellas. This game has desperation written all over it. This is it. And they are now just one win away from their first championship in 20 years. Well, it's been great, but we want to try to get it done in Melbourne. And Brisbane are looking the goods. A certain calm of the Brisbane Bullets. Is this it? Hopefully. Hello, everybody, and welcome. It is NBL Rewind. Hashtag NBL Rewind to get involved at NBL, Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, NBL TV, whatever you might be watching right now, or you've just been finished. A wonderful game. The Brisbane Bullets win the championship game four. They beat the Melbourne Tigers and Liam Santa Maria. There's a starting point with our very, very special guest that's just going to branch out in a 20 years of domination around the world. Hello to you, firstly. Hello. Um, excited for this one. Best team of all time, from my perspective, this 07 Bullets. And can I just say, I feel like we've taken too long to get this man on, on the show. One of the absolute all-time greats of our league. Yeah. And we do speak about, of course, not just here in our, in our country, where he dominated the NBL for so long, but, you know, in Europe, Olympic Games, of course, and then the NBA as well. And I speak of Mark Frankie. Hello, big fella. Welcome to NBL Rewind. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, let, let's start at the very end. Game four, the game that so many people have just seen. Yeah, I think you're 37, 38 years of age. You've just beaten the team that you played so much NBL for. Looking back... Is there, does it think like it was just yesterday or does it feel like 12, 13 years ago? Do the emotions still swirl? Um, both. Um, yeah, it feels like you could still do it, but then you stand up and you realise there's not a chance in hell that I could do anything like that. So um, that was, um, yeah, obviously not many people get to go out winning their last game mm -hmm. or, and then winning a championship in that last game and then defeating your old team in your last game as well. So it was... Um, uh, quite a milestone if you look at all those sort of things as well as the year that we had and the people that we had and the emotions and we had a, a really tight bond that Bullets team and uh, I know uh, Liam said oh the greatest team well I played on a couple of good teams there the Tigers mm -hmm. we had uh, some pretty good runs but uh, yeah that and the Bullets that last year was really special. H had you made the decision had you made the decision previous to game four in that season ending or series ending? No no not at all I wanted to go on forever and okay. uh, like you say, I was 38. So, um, I'd, um, uh, yeah, I moved to Brisbane the last couple of years of my career. Um, so, situations uh, changed in, in Melbourne here. I never thought I would have left, but in, uh, I moved up there. And then I moved from being a starting role to a, a bench role. And it took a little while to get used to. But we had such a, a great bunch of guys. And um, the, uh, the competitiveness at trainings was unbelievable. Um, Joey Wright had to sort of pull us back sometimes because he wanted to keep on going. But um, uh, moving to Queensland, sort of where I started my junior basketball, I was living in Queensland when I sort of saw basketball for the first time. So I felt like nearly a full circle to finish up there. Being a bit warm, it made the body a little bit easier to get going in the morning. So, um, but it was a, a wonderful year. You talk about that way that you finished up the career, moving to the Bullets away from where you'd played, what, 13 years or so with the, with the Tigers. And it's interesting because it's a decision that I think a lot of players uh, have to make as to how do they finish up, you know? Like I was 
I was talking to Tim Conrad yesterday, uh, who's been a one club player, and he's looking. Well, do I do I talk to other teams? Like, what do I do? How do I want to go out? What's from your experience? Like, what's your advice to people in that type of situation? Um, interesting. My father. We're talking about footy. We're talking about Matthew Lloyd one time when he was about to uh, call it quits. And my father-in-law said, oh, he should retire because we want him to remember him as a one-club player. And I'm saying, well, that's fine. So I, he or I or Tim Conrad should retire to keep someone else happy. Mm. You know, I, I don't think that's right. So you mm. want to be able to go to bed at night and wake up in the morning knowing you made the right decision. Mm. So um, as long as you, you want to stay a one-club player or you have loyalties or ties or family or whatever these things going on, but I think you have to be content in your decision what you want to do. And with myself, not that I want to get too in-depth what's going on with the Tigers, but I imagine I would have played my career out there. But um, uh, Andrew Gage had just retired. Um, and I was sort of... I never really had an age. I sort of had agents, but I sort of did most of the negotiating myself. And they... And I didn't... wasn't really negotiation. They'd put an offer in. I'd accept it or I wouldn't accept it. Simple as that. So um, the Tigers put an offer in and I was like, Gee, you know, it's, it's gone down a bit. Um, and I said, well, let me think about it. Then I was thinking, well, I'll either take it or I'll retire. And, um, and then they called me back and they said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'll just say no thanks. You know, because in sort of that, they said, well, we've got no more money left. We'll have to sack. They actually mentioned two players of the Tigers. And I was like, all right. So I listened to the meeting and I was like, all right, I was just there with um, uh, some people not you know, of, of the Tigers. And I was like, well, I'm not going to jeopardize someone else's career because I want some more money. I'll, I'll just retire. So when I came back, I said, oh, thanks for the offer, but no thanks. And they're like, well, no, you can't do that. Well, what's your counteroffer? I was like, no, there's no counteroffer. I'm not going to jeopardize someone else's career mm. for whatever the amount was. So, so And then... Brisbane came along and my wife's like, oh, really? I don't know if I want to go there. And I'm like, she, and foolishly, she said, do whatever you think's right. So I said, <laughs> we're going to Brisbane. Hey, <laughs> that's a license. Like, no way. I don't want to go to Brisbane, but that was, uh, that was another discussion to have. But um, <laughs> yeah, so it wasn't as though there was a long drawn out discussion with the Tigers. It was like, well, there's your offer. And I was like, my decision was accept or not accept. So I said, well, Thank you. I really enjoyed my time there. And I was ready to, like I said, probably to retire. I didn't want to, but I wasn't actively seeking another contract out. So Brisbane came along and like I said, it looked like a good fit. Um, they had a, a lot of young guys through there. Um, my parents live in Queensland. Um, just thought, good fit. And of course, you had that 05-06 season and then this one, the 06-07 season. And um, such a deep team. You know, like when you've got the greatest big man in the history of the league coming off the bench. And that, that I wrote a little while ago, that bench you had could have been a starting unit on most teams around the, around the league. And then towards the end, you had 18 wins in a row heading into the finals. Not too dissimilar, I think, to 97 when you were storming into the finals. What was the confidence level on that team as you were reaching the postseason? Well, we thought the second five... Uh, we were a grey team. We'd wear grey. The, the starters were blue, so we were the G unit. And uh, we sort of carried that Bullets team because uh, we had a lot of stars in the starting five. And uh, sometimes they couldn't quite handle the pressure. So then the <laughs> second five would come in there. 
But what it was great is um, CJ Bruton, he was in the starting five. Um, who else? You had Dusty Reichardt, Sam McKinnon. Um, oh, so now, now you've got me guessing here. Uh, Stephen Black and one other. I'm trying to think who it was. American? Uh, Eddie. Eddie, you're up. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, and then so the, the second unit was Dylan Boucher, Mick Hill, uh, Gibbo, Adam Gibson, myself, uh, Brad Williams. So anyway, in Crony, it was really good. So it would always be really competitive. CJ started bringing the little w, uh, WCW, WWF, whatever, little plastic tro- uh, belt put on the end of the court. And so we'd play competitive games. So it would always be the great team versus the stars. So, um, yeah, very competitive. But the bonding that we had through there and, um, yeah, plenty of times we had plenty of confidence. Dylan Boucher, great teammate, a lot like a Warwick Kitty. Then, you know, the glue, the, uh, the guy that does all the dirty work, the hard work, he was fantastic for us there. You know, superstar Sam McKinnon and CJ, all those sort of things. So we had such a deep bench, but really well-grounded, really tight-knit. You know, there was no – I was 38, give up, I was 18. And that was 20 yeah. years difference. I'm like, wow. But um, it was really good and a lot of fun to be around. Every day, practice was just awesome. And uh, um, uh, Joey Wright, you know, he gets a bit fiery sometimes. Sometimes he'd have his opinion and we'd have our opinion. But um, uh, we got the job done, you know. Um, we've, got, we've got a lot of time for Joey. And uh, if we said, look, this offense really isn't working, he'd sort of say, well, screw you. If, you've, if it stuff's up, it's on you. But we'd sort of tweak it and he'd understand and uh, he'd pull us back. You know, sometimes we wanted to train more, but he'd say, no, no, we've got to sort of pull it back and we've got games coming up and uh, it was really good. Well, the, the irony in, uh, obviously, with the Melbourne Tigers story just told on, then they went on to win a championship in 06, 07. And then the following year, you, you get to meet them. And, and as favourites going into it after that incredible regular season that Liam just spoke about, did, did, it, did it have an extra meaning to it playing against Melbourne after everything that you'd been through with the Tigers for so long? Oh, of course. You know, you um, you still had a lot of people there that you played against and uh, were still good friends with. And um, it wasn't as always a burning desire the whole year. Oh, I can't wait. I pencil in where the Tigers are. Um, you know, Adelaide was always a, a fun place to play. I used to get booed there quite a bit. Even now, if I happen to go back there, you might get a little <laughs> boo here and there. But uh, the Tigers didn't have that much uh, animosity towards me. But, um, you know, uh, you I played basketball, I played sport for the thrill of the challenge and the excitement of, you know, of competing against the opponent, but also the, the home crowd or, or whatever it is. So um, it did have a bit more special meaning and I probably knew it was going to be my last year. So um, like I said, then we had that run of 18 games in a row and sometimes you don't want to analyse it too much and like just keep it rolling, keep it rolling. So um, when we came in there, we were extremely confident. Uh, we believed we could do it, but um, you're still going to do it out on the, on the court. It ended up being 21 in a row. Um, it's a record that still stands, may never be beaten. The best of five series, 93 Tigers, 2007 Bullets. Who wins? Um, I probably saw the Tigers. I probably saw the Tigers. Um, but 97 was pretty good too. Mm. Because, you know, Marcus Timmons was on fire. Um, we're all a bit older and smarter and, and, and all those sort of things. But, um, look, they're all really competitive. Um, and, and that's what's really special because there are different moments for each different team and different roles. Like, I was playing um, in 93. I was sort of still learning the Tigers' offense and all those sort of things. 97, I was really ingrained there. Bullets coming off the bench. So, really different 
different personalities, different styles. So um, to do it over a long period of time as well, you know, I started in 1988. Yeah. So I had seen a lot, a lot of different opponents and teams come in and out and all those sort of things. So everyone's special. Um, 97, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, yeah, it's hard to know which team. You know, like I said, maybe 2007, maybe 93, maybe 97. I don't know. So, so much of, of when we speak about those 93, 97, or a lot of those 90s rivalry with the Southeast Melbourne Magic, and we've had uh, Andrew Gaze and, and Copes on NBL Rewind as well. Looking back on it, how much, how much fun was it? Like, there, there's so much disdain. We had Brian Gorgian, of course, on NBL Rewind as well, talk us through it. What are your memories of it, of, of how fun it was and that intense rivalry that really took basketball to a whole new level, not just in Melbourne, but probably the whole NBL? The greatest thing was that it was a genuine hatred for the other teams. Like us and the Magic, it was, it, was, it was like you didn't want to cross paths. And it was so genuine. And I think in sport, you need heroes and villains. You know, with the AFL, you either barrack for Collingwood or you hate Collingwood. So people will go to a game just to boo them. So I think that's what was so good. Uh, I know there was a... Uh, um, I may have made a comment saying that the Magic weren't as tough as in one of the, I think it was the 97 final series, I think it was. Um, their defence wasn't as hard as it normally was. Whereas Chris Appleby, the journey, put it that they, I said they were soft. So anyway, the, the electricity Damn, in Geno's. the building. Yeah, I know. I know <laughs> Apples. He's all right. Um, but the electricity in the building an hour before tip-off was unbelievable. Mm. And, and the hatred or we wouldn't want to cross paths as we went to shoot around. And the funny thing is, in, um, with the Boomers one time, uh, Brian Gorgian, who I hated, couldn't stand the guy. And everyone, ah, oh, Gorgian's great. I said, no, nah, I can't stand the guy. I want to hit him. I saw Marcus. Marcus used to run the four spot, and I used to be the post. I said, Marcus, change spots because Gordon's on the court, and I'm going to clean him up. If he's on the court, I'm not looking, but I'm hitting him hard. And Marcus is like, you can't do that. I said, I'm going to do it. If he's on there, there's change spots. I'm cleaning him up. So anyway, at a Boomers camp one time, Gordon was one of the special coaches that came in. So at breakfast, we, at the Institute of Sport, we had a big, long table for our team, and I was the last one at breakfast, you know, and there was only one seat left. And it was alongside Gorgian. So I walked around the table about three times. <laughs> Bloody going to sit down alongside this guy. And I didn't want to. I was just waiting for someone to leave. But anyway, sat down, had a good chat with him. Really good guy. Excellent. You know, and I've got a lot of respect for him now. And, and, um, and he had the same goals and the passions and the desires for basketball. So, but yeah, it took a long time to go and sit alongside of him. But uh, I'm glad I did because, uh, yeah, quality guy. What was it at the time that, about him that gave you the errors? Everything. His <laughs> pants, his hair, his coat, you guys, um, Dorgy, um, you know, everybody. Um, you know, Mike Kelly and Sam McKinnon and, and Bruce Bolden. And it, it was everybody. It wasn't one thing. It was, they were the magic. And it was always that, oh, we didn't care. Um, you know, if you watch on the news, you guys be working hard on defense and doing defensive slides and all that. And they'd show a shot of us shooting half court shots. You know, what we at the Tigers, we, we did the same thing every bloody day. So, but we were so focused on our tasks on the offensive end, maybe more than the defense, where Brian was more of a defensive coach, which is ironic because he was such an offensive player when he played as a player. But um, we, knew as in the Tigers we knew everybody's game inside out and everybody thought they knew what we were doing but as always it was a night it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a conversation that was as I talked to Copes one day I said mate you haven't had a few shots here 
go back to, I'm going to hit you on a bounce pass, you're going to hit you a layup. Mm. Or just wait, hold the second for a second longer, and I'm going to hit you a man, you'll get a jump shot. He goes, really? I said, yeah, of course. Bang, get him a jump shot. He goes, I'll get you one. I said, no, no worries. I'll hit you again. You get another jump shot. And he goes, no, no, I'll get you a shot. Don't worry. I'm going to hit you a man. They're going to go and double team me anyway. I'll get a pass. I'll get a laugh. Don't worry. And you're going to miss 40, 60% of your shots anyway. So I'll get a rebound and I'll put it back in. But, <laughs> but we knew each other's game so well and the personalities and who needed a hug and who needed to be yelled at. And um, so that's why I think, you know, you had, the, the, the Magic had a really strong camp and the Tigers had a strong camp and a strong belief. So that's why I think the series was so good. And like I said, I think people liked um, the, the – it wasn't friendly basketball. We didn't want to shake hands. We didn't want to – and it was genuine. But then a week later, you go into Boomer's camp, and I'm room with Ronaldson, or I'm room with Dorji, and you're hanging out like your mates. But when it was – it was when you're on my team, you're the best guy. If you're on the other team, I hated you, and I didn't care who you were. Did, did you enjoy that animosity, that competitive animosity – as well, you know, like we, we all watch the last dance and we see that we, we hear those stories that even Jordan was telling them themselves about how he used to want to be motivated to perform. Did you enjoy the fact that hatred and like you were like, I'm not going out of my way to make friends with these guys? Absolutely. I think that's the, the pinnacle of sport. You know, you have this passion and you have this bond, you know. They say, you know, you're as weak as a leak, is, uh, your, your, your weakest chain in, in your leap there. You have all these bits and pieces, but that's what it was. And I wanted, I love, you know, Georgia was great, you know, throw his elbows. So I wanted to hit him. He wanted to hit me and it built. And then, so then you hit, and also didn't have been Brett Wheeler in. So it'd be a different challenge. And you do all these different things. I then it was Ben Pepper or Melmoth or whatever it was. So that challenge was the thing that inspired me the most with basketball. And um, the, I love the physicality, you know, and I watch the Houston Rockets now and it drives me nuts. And I think I hate to play like that. You know, I like the, 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 the thought process that goes into a game and how we attack a certain people. And, you know, what with D-Mac, you don't say boo to him. You don't say boo to Daniel Me, You keep him quiet. You protect him. You do all that. You know, one time at Simon Dwight, I was playing. And I knew Simon was a great athlete and he hit the three and he dunked on me and everything. So the first time he came down in the middle of the cow, I hit him as hard as I could in the middle of his chest with my elbow. And I heard the wind go out of him. I said, all right. And the next time he did it again, he goes, what's that for? And I said, if you step in the key again, I'm going to smash your nose. And he moved to the three-point line. And I was like, all right, my job's done. Now I've just got to stop the three. But before that, he hit the three, he'd dunk on me, he'd block my shot, he'd do it all that. So I was about learning how and what personalities and what people wanted and just taking away what they wanted. And you, yeah, the mental game was awesome. I used to love the mental game. Did you watch game seven of the mm. uh, Nuggets um, Clippers series yesterday? Because yeah, I, I watched could imagine you loving watching Nikola Jokic. Yeah, I was thinking about him this morning and, and I was thinking about the Rockets and I was going to talk to you guys and all that. With... Jokic is so good because you've got a mid-range game. Mm. And he's got such great balance and awareness. If you see Which him in you the post... later in your career. Yeah, well, you learn. And I think I know more, a hell of a lot more now than I did when I played. But you watch him in the post, he never, he's never fallen off balance. He's not strong. He's not quick. He's got great touch. Um, they were breaking down the game about how the high pick and roll with Jokic going to the middle of the key. And he was so effective, he knew where the double team was coming from. But he's only effective because he could hit the, hit the, the, um, the uh, elbow jump shot. And that, all they're talking about now is you've got to hit a three or you've got to all over the bucket. 
but he's so good. A, he can hit the three, but he's got great vision. So when he gets in that high post, if you're not on him, he'll just shoot the jumper. So, mm. so they're rushing at him, but then he has his balance and his awareness and he passes it from there. So um, you see super athletes who can't play the game. And you see people like him or Kaluka Doncic who understand and let the game happen. And he is so good that way. And yeah, he, he can get in people's heads without doing too much because mm. he's got too many options, you mm. know? And, and yeah, he's, yeah, he's unorthodox in a lot of ways. He's doing, what's he doing? A, a step back off the right foot fadeaway three-pointers. And you're like, what the hell? Great shot. Mm-hmm. But, he, but, he, but his balance, he never goes outside of his cylinder. He's always, his shoulders are over his hips and he never gets off balance there, even though it might be a step back. But he, he, he will come down in the same, he'll, he'll come down balance ready to go. So I think balance is the most important thing in basketball. If you watch Roger, Fedger, Roger Federer play tennis, he worked all that. As soon as he hits it, he's back on balance ready to go. With yeah. basketball, as soon as you get outside of your frame and your shoulders get out there, you can't control anything. So um, he's an expert at that. This is sorry, Cam. I was just going to say this is what I felt like. I remember for you in the two thousand and two season, your MVP year. This is why you were so unstoppable, especially at that point when you developed that mid-range game and that face-up game, and you were able to just all of a sudden you were just in unguardable. Because you could pass, you you were you were all you couldn't keep you off the offensive glass. You were, um, and then you had that little mid-range game that all of us. Where did that part? I mean, did you consciously say this is the next evolution of my career to develop this part of my game? No, there was a guy that uh, finally didn't play for a couple of games, and then the uh, coach looked at other people. So, uh, Drew went down, Andrew Gage went down with a, I think it was a stress fracture in his foot. Mm -hmm. And um, so, he um, um, was was removed. So, it was just me and Copes, basically Mm. doing a lot more responsibility. And I always sort of had that game. I tried, I moved it a little bit to the three-point line, mainly end of shot clocks, things like that. I think one year I led the team in three-point percentage. It was very poor, but I only took enough shot. It wouldn't have qualified for the uh, bits and pieces. But, um, yeah, so, A, my um, level of responsibility for scoring was increased because Andrew wasn't there. Uh, I felt I sort of had that there. But um, I just tried to keep my game simple as possible. So, uh, I enjoyed the rebounding and the physicality and trying to beat people up and down the court. So, my goals were to get 16 rebounds a game. So people say, well, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't do that. So, well, if you break it down, Lindsay doesn't really sub me out. So I'm playing a lot of minutes all the time. Um, so it's a 48-minute game. So I'm going to get four rebounds a quarter. So I figure if I can get one offensive rebound and three defensive rebounds a quarter, one offense, three defense, there's my 16 a game. And I'll probably miss a couple of layups. I'll get my own rebound, put it back in. So that was my goal. It was always like, okay, be active, help the guys in defense, because I had a lot of um, Matador defense on the Tigers. So, Copes and Drew were out there with a little flag in, the, in this LA, and they'd go through. So, I was sort of staying there. So, I was always around the basket. But then, so that year, I was doing all those sort of things, getting my rebounds, getting your putbacks. And like I say, when people... Andrew Gaze is a great scorer, but how did he score? So, everyone thinks great jump shooter and all that. Yeah, fantastic. But he would get eight foul shots a game mm. and make seven or eight. He would get... He'd sit at the half-court line a fair bit and get cherry-picking, but he would get eight layups a game from mm-hmm. back doors or fast breaks. And so he's only hitting four or five jump shots. So learn how to build your game. So if you're talking about my great year in 2002, when I got the MVP, 
I think I averaged about 24 a game, 22, 24 a game. But there would have been eight to 10 shots from inside the key, really close. Then there'd be two or three mid-range jumpers and there'd be a few foul shots and then a couple, whatever. So if you, if you try and really break it down to how you become that. So for that year, okay, I took a couple more jump shots. I took a more responsibility if there was eight seconds, six seconds to go. Mm -hmm. Instead of looking to how I can uh, pass it off to Andrew or Copes, mm -hmm. right, it's my turn to take it. So it was just breaking it down that way. I, I just want to just circle back just quickly, talking of Jokic. Uh, unbelievable passer, as, as you touched on, Hoax. But you, mm. Avita Sabonis. Yep. Now, he was an exceptional passer and, and, and someone that probably went to the NBA too late. And a lot of people didn't get to see his prime in the NBA, but you played a lot of basketball against him internationally. Talk, because I, I, I see similarities between in particular with their passing. Talk to us about some of those great battles and you know, Olympic games and, and big Olympic games moments against him. He, um, he's my favorite player of all time. He, um, the biggest challenge, the biggest person. Um, Yao Ming's slightly bigger, but uh, Sabonis, I was really lucky enough in the last two years, I've seen him lots. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to the World Cup draw. Lithuania sat right in front of us, and we get the same ball as Lithuania. He turns around and goes, "Here we go again." <laughs> um, so, and and then saw him a heap at the uh, World Cup, and it was great to talk to him a little bit. And uh, uh, I played against him when I played in Spain, and, and unfortunately, uh, came against him. And most importantly, was the '96 uh, Olympics mm -hmm. when uh, Australia. Uh, we didn't have Luke Longley; he had uh, ankle surgery, so it was me and Dorji and Ray Borner going against uh, Sabonis. And, and in that game there, you know, seven foot three, uh, his passing ability was awesome, super strong, hit the three, low post game. So he, yeah, he was the, um, you know, the start of the big man who could do it all. And, you know, I never saw him in his prime when he was really good. I heard stories about you know, him getting rebounds and turning and throwing it, you know, midair and hitting people on dimes. But he was such a, um, uh, a big big unit to play against you know when i was playing then i was probably 118 kilos and he was probably 130 probably 140 kilos so you're giving up you know at least 20 kilos and four to five inches in height and then they're going through every single time into the high post low post wherever he is he's throwing flick bounce passes to people um yeah it, it was it was awesome to play you know that's why i wanted to play the olympics is to go and play against people like him and, um, yeah, so, so superb player. Um, we traded tracksuits. I've got his tracksuit. As we go through this lockdown, we go through old bags and bits and pieces. I pulled out his old tracksuit the other day. Uh, massive. The pants come up to about here <laughs> on me. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, super player. And, and the, I think the best thing about Australia and uh, was Russia originally when we played in 1987, 88, when I first made the Australian team, we played them five times in 87 and five times in 88 in Australia. So, you know, Marshall Lienas, Alexander Volkov, mm -hmm. Tikhonenko, Kordonitis, um, all these players. Mm -hmm. So we got to know them then. And then, you know, uh, we saw in 92 Olympics, um, we had drinking games. They were in the next block to us. So at the end of the Olympics, I remember sitting in the room with those guys. And then, because, uh, and then Kordonitis comes and plays with Townsville. Mm. And then, you see him again in 96. So we had a really good relationship, respect. They taught us a hell of a lot. I think, you know, having that series really helped uh, the boomers program that I was in. That was just the best thing that ever happened to us, I think, because we learned how they played. And 
and it wasn't as though we're like, okay, I think we got a chance. It was always hard. We never beat them in that situation, but we'll, we learned so much. I assume the big fella could be able to get a few beers down as well. Um, I have heard legendary stories. He can knock a few down, but um, they were playing football vodka or something. He had a bottle of vodka they were throwing around. He had to go and steal a bottle of vodka straight. So, um, yeah, we, we weren't there as long as they were. We, had, we, we stopped in for a little bit and we realised that uh, maybe we're uh, fighting out of our weight division. Hey, Alex, uh, over 200 games for Australia, over 14 mm. years, four Olympics, couple of world championships. When you look back on that time in the green and gold, what's your... What's your favourite memory of a win and your least favourite? Your What did you find was the most heartbreaking loss? Um, uh, okay. I think the my most memorable time with the Boomers, let's go, let's go with that. Rather than best win or, you know, there's always significant wins. Now, we had um, um, Tony Robinson hitting a three-pointer in at Atlanta against Croatia. Um, uh, the game we beat Russia in uh, in Sydney. Um, Andrew Gaze always says when we played Italy and I had two foul shots to go uh, and they called a timeout and he was so scared for me, thought it was going to wreck me for the rest of my life and I made both foul shots. So there's a lot of good moments and memories. Um, my greatest memory for basketball... Okay, so it's about the people you're with. So yeah. in Sydney... Um, there was an end of an era for a lot of people. So Luke was retiring, Vlahov, Andrew Gaze, but people like Peter Hardcourt was the team doctor and Craig Purdom and all these people who we started out with juniors a lot of times. Mm. So, and so I remember, you know, it was heartbreaking the loss. We sat in the locker room for a long time after the Sydney Olympics in our uniforms, drinking beers, laughing and crying. And so that was, it was a real good it was really therapeutic to go through all that. So that's nearly my fondest memory. It was the biggest defeat, you know, uh, the pain, but it was the acknowledgement that we've both done so many things together. Um, yeah, that, you know, that is probably, you know, and when you stop playing, you don't, I don't think about games. I think about relationships and people and, and what you, you went through and, and how you got there. So that were my most precious moments. You know, we had great wins and we had great tours and, you know, the funniest times is when you go away and you've got Brett Maher and Matty Nielsen telling jokes all day and we're stuck in the airports for eight hours with stopovers and we're all deliriously tired. And their, their memories and their, their exciting things that happened. Um, mm. The game sort of blend in, but it's those, um, capturing those moments, you know, sitting down with Brett Brown in a little hotel bar in, in, in Italy trying to work out offences and defences or, or there's little moments, whether it's with, you know, like I said, the doctor or um, doing something with the player, but it's not necessarily on the court. It's, it's everything that's built around it. Just on that and Sydney, we are, of course, 20-year anniversary since the Sydney Olympics. Jury told us a story about when he was walking back with yourself after, uh, I think, a press conference and John Coates grabbed him and, and speaks about that moment. Just from your perspective of, of being told he's going to carry the flag and being right there? Yeah, well, I tear up most times when I talk about it. But, um, yeah, obviously, the guy's name is, uh, is, is so famous in Australian basketball. So, yeah, there was a – John Coates pulled both of us aside and, 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 and told Andrew and said, don't tell anybody else. So we both – as soon as he walks away, we both call our wives and, and, you know, start crying and all that. But then we had to keep it a secret to the rest of the teammates until we played the next night. So, uh but yeah, great recognition. You know, 
the Olympics means the world to Andrew, I think, as well. So to have that honour, and he did it very well, you know. No, no etiquette, just walk wherever, wave it around, you know, forget to dip the flag, all these sort of things. So it was a great um, moment for him, but also for the team and for basketball that uh, we get that. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I can remember it vividly, you know, John Coach coming up and, oh my gosh, what have we done? You know, <laughs> are we in trouble? But, uh, yeah, it was awesome, awesome for him. Four years earlier, your NBA experience with the Philadelphia 76ers, 96-97, what are your strongest memories of that experience overall? Um, we, we, we weren't a very good team. Um, we had a rookie point guard in Allen Iverson. We had a rookie coach in Donnie Davis, and we had a rookie general manager in Pat Croce. So we had a lot of first-time people in there. So we didn't have a lot of structure and a lot of leadership in there, in the team. Um, you know, there were some older veterans, Michael Cage was on the team, who I spoke to a lot. Um, but we had Derek Coleman and Jerry Stackhouse um, as the two of the, well, the, the three big names on the team. So um, Alan was, I, 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 he was a super player, super player. And I've watched his documentaries now and what he's gone through and all that. So uh, I've learnt more now than I suppose when I was with the team. But um, he was a young kid who was testing his environment. He wanted to find out where the boundaries were. And, you know, because Sixers had a strong history, but they'd been playing poorly, they would just do anything. So, you know, we'd get to training session and the coach would say, pass the wing and cut through. So Iverson would roll the ball on the ground and just walk through. And nothing was said. You're like, oh, sure, okay. Or we get on the plane and we got to take off and he'd take the seatbelt off and run up down the aisle and nothing was said. He was trying to find out where his boundaries were. And so I blamed the environment, you know, rather than how he became, you know, a bit rebellious and all that. I think if he had a, uh, a senior point guard to really take him under his wing and help him out, Mo Cheeks was there. He was trying to do that. Super guy. Um, but I think he, if he would have turned out just as good a player, but he may have been a bit more controllable in those early years, you know. So, um, but, you know, you, with him and Derek Coleman, I remember one day at practice, because well, I wasn't playing much, so we just tried to get any game time we could in practice, and we are playing three on three. And I think Derek may not have gone home that night before, so he may have been drinking a little bit, and uh, it was just a, a shoot around, and so it was him and two other guys, and man, uh, you know, it was three on three, and I was guarding him. And like I said, he had been drinking all night and he hadn't slept. And he, best player I've ever played against. He was unstoppable. He could do whatever he wanted to. Hmm. And I know he had three games of 2020 in a row. So he's coming down, he's taking rebounds over to Kemi Mutombo and Duncan and coming down, getting a stop, coming down again, pull up for a three. Coming down, he could do so many things. He was an amazing talent, Derek Coleman. But... Like I said, basketball is a real mental game. And whether they needed a really strong coach, if you had um, Craig Popovich with Alan Iverson and Derek Coleman and Jerry Stackhouse, completely different, I think. Yeah. Or if you had, um, you know, do you have a Ron Harper as your uh, backup guard teaching Iverson how to play? Or do you have, um, you know, Jimmy Butler, you know, who's demanding of all his teammates? You know, could have had a lot of different careers. But, um, yeah, so when he won 16 games, and I think I know why, um, I, um, Luke was obviously with the Bulls. So when he was in town, I tried to sort of catch up with Luke. 
uh, the first game we played in Philadelphia. And uh, as you do, you shoot around before the game. So I was trying to get my sweat in because I wasn't going to play, probably. <laughs> and uh, so I was talking to Luke at half court. And he goes, I oh, can we meet some of my teammates. So he introduced to uh, Steve Kerr, Judd Bushler, Bill Weddington, things like that. So great, no worries. Hey, good luck. See you later. Nothing more. Um, the next time we played in uh, Chicago, um, Luke wasn't playing. He was injured. So I'm shooting around. Those same players came up and said, oh, how's it going? You're, you're a mate of Luke, so oh, yeah, you're fitting in all right. You know, how are you traveling and all that? Fantastic. See, mm. my teammates didn't do that. Mm. We were really, really insecure about oh, who was going to get the next contract or I won't make the pass, I'll take the shot because if I can average four points a game and get a contract, I may average two points a game, I don't get a contract. Whereas the Bulls obviously knew they were good. That was with their... Um, there were only the 10 losses in that season, but they knew what was going on and they were comfortable and they knew their roles and their coach was telling it. So you just see the contrast of the best team and nearly, I think we might have been the worst or close to the worst team. So um, yeah, fascinating to see that. But some of our drills we do in training sessions, I'd be looking back now thinking, I don't know if I'd do that in under 14s, you know? We had to make wow. 10 layups in a one time with our right hand as a team and 10 with our left hand. I'm thinking, as I'm doing it, I'm like, is this the NBA or, you know? <laughs> Sometime I was like, all right, suck it up. Here we go. Did, did it leave like a sour taste in your mouth or a little bit of a different feeling towards the NBA? It's obviously so many people's dream to actually make it. Then when you're there and it is like it was for, for you, did, did it change your perception of the league? Um, I didn't actively try to go back. I didn't feel like I wanted to um, uh, explore those options. I know the... Um, uh, the assistant coaches would come up when I'd be shooting around before training sessions and quite often they'd come up to the says, you know, this is not a normal NBA team. And I sort of look at them and think, okay, no worries. And, um, and, and I think, you know, if you look at what the Spurs have done for a long time or, or quality teams is that um, they have a really, it's all about procedures and, and, and uh, understanding roles and being accountable and all those sort of things where we didn't have that there. So, no, I didn't actively try to pursue another contract. I asked if I could get waived or something during the middle of the season. Just let me go. Let me try and go somewhere else, see if I could play. Um, but I had times where I'd play quite a bit. I had one game where I even started the second half. I think I had eight and ten against Charlotte. Something and all right, playing heaps and uh, started the second half and I'm feeling good. Then you don't play for the next seven games. And then you get a game where you get 10 seconds. And then you sit again. All of a sudden, then you're playing 18 minutes. And you're like, well, where did that come from? So mm. the emotions of ups and downs, really hard. You know, it's, it's much easier being a starter than being a bench, guys, I think. Because if you're a starter, you know where your minutes are and all that. When you're on the bench and the fringe, really hard. Yeah. Is there any communication? Um, like, as I to what you did this and not did this when it comes to minutes? No. Uh, I think I spoke to the coach three times. Um, once it was in the list, like, say, how you doing? Um, I think he thought Australia was in Europe somewhere. Okay. Um, but, but this is 96, isn't it? We're not talking yeah. a lot. We yeah. all haven't got smartphones. And we're not, uh, we haven't got YouTube to find out what everyone's doing. Yeah. So, no, there wasn't a lot of communication with the head coach uh, through there. Uh, like I said, Mo Cheeks was really good. I really enjoyed his company. Um, you know, talking about the old times when he was there with Barkley and all those sort of things and, um, and how things had changed even back then. So nowadays, you know, yeah. It's, yeah. You think you would have played longer in the NBA, Hogs, if you'd landed in a better situation? Um, um, I would have liked the opportunity to test yourself. 
you know, like I said, the Olympics is all about testing yourself. I would have liked the opportunity to try and test yourself a bit. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's sliding door moments, you know, things to, you know, you think, well, maybe if I did that or if I went out as a different team here or, and as what you see now is, you know, the amount of non-Americans playing in the NBA. I think back then it was me, Hammer, Luke, um, Detlef Shrimp was there, um, uh, Drazen Petrovic was there. There wasn't a whole lot, you know, so you're not talking about huge numbers of people. Um, yeah, so whereas now, if you don't have three or four non-Americans mm. in your team, you know, there's something wrong. Whereas, mm. you know, is that, there was a handful, you know, back then. You must have had some, uh, some interesting on-court situa- uh, experiences, though, during that season. Like, um, you talk about those internationals, like George Murasan going up against a guy mm. like him. Like, what were some of the more interesting on-court experiences you had? I think we played Washington. I think it was my second game. And I played 32 minutes against Murasan. So I'd come in, no, nothing. When I first walked into the locker room, because um, I missed, uh, I had visa trouble, so I couldn't get there for any training camp. So I came in, I think, four games into the season. So we were supposed to have a shoot around in the morning, but they played the night before, so they cancelled that. They said, oh, I'll be at the game at 6.30. So you walk into the, the arena, never been there, never met a person before. You've only met the equipment guy who picked you up from the airport, and you walk into the arena, and he goes, oh, there's your uniform. And that was it. So I had to go around and say, hi, how are you? Um, from Australia. Says, no, what's your name? Uh, what's that? Alan Iverson? Okay. Uh, so nothing. Zero. There wasn't an introduction. There was nothing. Right. So I, I played, I think, Washington the second game. And so I played 30 minutes, 32 minutes. The most minutes I played in the whole... But I didn't know the teammates. didn't know offense. I didn't know how to play. So, um, but yeah, it was... Um, yeah, there was, there was moments there. I know one time we were at practice and Iverson and Stackhouse starting into a fight, throwing punches. So I jump in there and pull them apart. Mm. Everyone's like, no, 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 let him go. Let's watch. Let's see what happens. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Next time I won't jump in. Um, so yeah, the big thing was in Australia, we have teammates. Yeah. So it's mates. Whereas mm. over there, you know, they're another player on my team. So, um, right. uh, yeah, um, they, they weren't all bad. There were some good people. But there were some dicks as well, so you know, yeah, sort of, you know, you have your moments. And uh, um, I think I went out. We played forty, forty played forty-one road games. I think I went out twice or three times with one of the teammates. The rest of the time you just do it by yourself. Yeah. And you go to the city, you're like, oh, I want to sit in the room, or do I, I have to go go to a restaurant and save a backpacker, and you know, just you know, walk around and just do normal stuff. So um, yeah, it was interesting. Wow, tall backpackers walk yeah. around. Saying that they're an NBA player. <laughs> you're an NBA player saying you're a backpacker. Yeah, well, I didn't want to, you know, draw attention to anything, so I just sort of winged it, and uh, yeah, I enjoyed just sort of sneaking around. Speaking, tell me, correct me if I'm wrong on the actual year, but I think it was 1995. You were a part-time NBL player because you were travelling around the world with your, your wife Nicole, of course, who was an elite tennis player, and on tour. What, what was that like travelling around the world to, to glamorous locations, and then when you're back in Melbourne for a short period of time, playing and dominating the NBL? It must have been a weird season. It was. It was a weird season. I know. I I I've been playing basketball. I started when I was only. I started playing basketball when I was 15, and then I made the Olympic team by the time I was 18. So I went from nothing to doing a lot really quickly. And it's sort of end of 94, Nick must have mentioned, oh, I wouldn't mind you coming on the tour. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a bit tired. You know, I wouldn't mind. So I stressed about it for a long time. And I finally got the courage to go and see Lindsay. 
in the preseason. He goes, yeah, I thought you might do that. I was like, all right. So anyway, um, so we travelled, which was really good. So we come from, and it was a really good eye-opener because we come from a team sport or anybody in a team sport, you get told what time training is, um, what colour your uniform you're wearing, what time the meal is, this time the flight, that's it. And you did nothing. Whereas an individual athlete, you got to do everything yourself. And when you lose, you're going to find your flights, get out of there, you go to the next spot, find out who you're playing doubles with. So that was a great eye-opener to see that. Um, yeah, getting the travel around, you know, uh, one, one minute you're in Germany and the next minute you're in Wimbledon. I know Wimbledon was a great experience. That's a real lot of history there. Um, you stay in a house you know, in Wimbledon, so you'd, you'd hire a bike, you'd ride down the street, you'd order the curry, and then you'd pop into the pub next door and have a quick pint and then you'd, you know, or two, then you'd ride your bike home a bit wobbly. Um, uh, I know one time we were at, uh, at the practice courts at Wimbledon and there's heaps of people everywhere. And so on our court beforehand was Stefan Edberg and Andre Agassiz. So you're like, well, that's not bad. So I sort of wander over there. And then Agassiz starts having a chat. And next minute, I'm there for half an hour. And he's asking all this and that. So I had a really good chat. And my wife's like, what the hell got into there, you know? Nick used to play with him in the juniors. So we've got all these old photos of them in 12 and under 12s and all that. But um, even that, the next year at the Australian Open. And I sometimes I had to warm my wife up because there was nobody hitting. Mm-hmm. And now my tennis is not very good. <laughs> and the balls fly everywhere. I know one time I went to hit the ball and it got stuck in the little triangle there. Um, but yeah, so Nick was getting ready to go to Japan the next tournament. So we're there at the men's open final. And Agassi's playing it. He's warming up. And he's coming past waving and saying hello. And my wife's like, what the hell? You know? So it was great to see people like that. Um, uh, it was uh, an interesting environment. Very um, insular as far as just, you just move around. So the girls sort of, you get a coach or a trainer and you, you try to stick with them. And it was, it was a strange that way, but it was great just to go and experience all those tournaments and then just come back and play a game here and there. And Lindsay was fine with it. And uh, Blair Smith did a great job when I was away. So, um, yeah, it was awesome. How much do you think it helped? Like, you talk about the fact that it all sort of happened so quickly and then you had this sort of half year off or year off. How much do you think it helped with extending your career both physically and mentally? Oh, a lot, I think. I think it, it really freshened me up mentally and uh, it realised that you wanted to play and you mm-hmm. loved the game. So, um, because when you do the Australian team and then the um, the NBL season, you just don't have a break. Mm-hmm. So, you finish your NBL season and then you've got tours and bits and pieces. Um, we've had many Christmases away that you sort of, then you come straight back and start pre-season. That was when we were in the winter sport. So, we didn't get a chance really to... to step away from the game. There was always Australian team commitments. Um, and that was always a really high priority of mine. So I think it was great to let me realise that I do love the game and um, just wanted to get back and wanted to be with your teammates and wanted that mateship and, you know, the fun of being on the road and playing dominoes or or whatever. That was the thing that you missed. Yeah, uh, as you mentioned before, starting picking up the game um, late and then suddenly being in the Australian team in, in 98 as an 18-year-old. Who, um, when you first went to Adelaide, I imagine, was it Bill Jones? You were, playing behind, you were playing behind Bill Jones. And then on the Australian team, I imagine it's Ray Borner and these type of guys. Mm. Who had a big influence on you in that early stage in terms of learning the tricks of the trade of, of being a big man? Yeah, I think the, the best thing for me was Mark Davis, mm. uh, chairman of the boards, six foot five, extremely strong American who never called one foul. So for my first four years in Adelaide, he never called a foul at training 
and used to beat the crap out of me. And the mm. best thing that could have happened because, um, yeah, I had to fight for everything and he would dominate the rebounds and he'd bash into you and do all these sort of things. So he was awesome that way. So um, by, by far and away, um, the biggest influence for my career. And you get into a game and the referee would blow a whistle. They're like, I didn't travel. And they're like, no, no, they fouled you. I said, really? You see what we do at training? And <laughs> you're calling that? <laughs> so it was, but, you know, in my first years, you know, Al Green and Bill, uh, Bill Jones and Mark Davis and Peter Alley and Mike McKay and Daryl Pierce, um, high intensity, fast, instant offense. Um, some of the training sessions that we had and the dunks that were thrown down, not, probably not from Daryl Pierce or Mike McKay, but um, it was just going hard. And uh, that was, you know, awesome memories of just, you know, little dark, dingy stadiums you're training in and just trying to dunk, trying to rip the ring off every time you, you dunked it. Listening to you say that makes me think it must have meant a lot to you when you broke Mark Davis's record. You were, I mean, he was in the building. Right, the yeah, rebounding record. Yeah, it was in Adelaide. So yeah, um, yeah he presented. Yeah, so yeah, a massive fan uh, of his for forever, and to to beat his record is a uh, you know, awesome. You know, I, I can't think of uh, you know you got to beat it. So might not beat the best. So um, uh, and then he presented me the game ball. I think it was the same week that Brett Maher lost his son as well, uh, Hudson. So it was quite emotional time. Um, yeah, and then doing it in Adelaide as well, so it was huge. You you still watch the game today? We occasionally see you at, at games in Melbourne. How, how close do you watch NBL twenty and twenty one, and how it's all going? Um, uh, I try to watch as much as I can. I've still mm -hmm. got one child in uh, junior basketball, so mm -hmm. Friday nights are out, and and Sunday training sessions and all that. So I try and catch as much as I can. Um, still, I still love the game. Um, I actually had a total knee replacement last October. So I wasn't doing as much on-court stuff towards the end of that because I was a bit, there was a lot of pain. But I'm trying to get into more coaching now. Um, I really love the development side of things. So I enjoy watching players, you know, Will Magne and what he's doing. I really like his energy and his, um, and his style of game. Um, you know, and also being a part of the boomers and seeing um, people like Nick Kay and his work ethic and how he goes about things has been really, you know, it's been wonderful. We, we, I asked, I think one of us, I think one of I mean, myself, but we, we asked Mark Worthington a couple of weeks ago, what would it mean uh, being a former boomer if, if hopefully Tokyo 2021, that medal was finally realised? Like, how big would that be for you, for you individually to be a part of what that meant to you to see finally that men's team win a medal? Oh, look, it'll be awesome. You know, it's been a goal for such a long, long time for, for all Australian teams. The girls have been, you know, leading the way for such a long, long time and they've been superb and they've, they're great role models and ambassadors. You know, I'd love the men to be able to just taste a little bit of what they've had, their, their achievements, and, and they're, they're, they've been doing so well. So, yeah, look, we've... Will 21 happen? I don't know. I really hope it does. Uh, we've got a great window with some great people in there, superb athletes. Um, and we've got the school level. Um, it is a really tough uh, proposition is to win a medal. Mm. There are some awesome teams that don't even make the Olympics. European sure. qualifiers are so tough. So, you know, it, it, we're, we're a small country fighting well above our weight. We, you know, 
when I was playing, um, I was told that with the restraints, there's the coat of arms, and we've got the kangaroo and the emu. And apparently they're the only two animals that can't take a backward step. They can move forward. And so that was always what we did when we were in our group, saying we don't take a backward step. Okay, we're smaller. You know, we're the third or fourth sport in the country, whatever it is, but we fight. And, and, I, and, and as long as we continue to do that, and if we don't win the medal, but continue to fight and show that, that work ethic and that passion for the country, I, I think we all accept that. You know, we want to win the, we want to win a medal. You know, obviously gold's our priority, but if it doesn't happen, as long as they're all showing those qualities, um, I think we're all proud of everybody who's, who's been a part of it. And I think that's really, you know, when I was involved with the Booms for a little bit, we, um, we had single presentations for new people. And we always say, you're part of the Boomer squad now. I don't care if you play one game in Iran, you know, you're part of the Boomers mm. and you're part of our family. And it's a family and we want the family to grow and we want it to prosper. Extremely well said. Hashtag NBL Rewind. If you haven't checked out this game yet, check it out. You've got to jump on the socials, Instagram, Twitter, NBL TV, Twitch, whatever it might be, Facebook. Jump on. Is that a, is that a pet bird or is that a magpie that's just squirking over your shoulder there? Oh, look, it's springtime here in Melbourne, you know. Everybody, Dude. there's so much life and activity in Melbourne at the moment. I'm locked in the backyard. <laughs> I never noticed it, but uh, my dog's not here, so that's one star. But the birds, it's, uh, I'll, I'll see if I can get a slingshot and just, um, I think it's actually a baby one. <laughs> yeah, love it. As always, love chatting to you, Hoax. It's, it's been such a, uh, an honour and a privilege. And, we, and Liam and I have the, the best job in the world, being able to have a chat about uh, all your favourite memories and what a great career it was. Could have done this for probably another three hours. Copes continues to hit us up, wants to do three or four versions of his. So we'll see how we go. And hopefully, because we do every time we speak to Gazy or to Copes, they talk about your golf. So hopefully you're able to get back on the golf course sometime soon uh, in the state of Victoria. Yeah, no, let's hope that uh, it all goes well. I get sick and tired of beating those guys, so I'm hoping that they're train, uh, doing a lot of training um, in front of the uh, PlayStation now. But, uh, hey, well done with the show and uh, looking forward to uh, future episodes. Appreciate Thanks, it. Guys. Hashtag NBL Rewind to get involved. Have a great weekend. Isolation conversation this weekend. Liam, you got, you got someone? I'll have someone. Okay, good. Look forward <laughs> to that. NBL Overtime next Tuesday at NBL to get involved.